Hello world, this is SpartaCast. Hello and welcome to SpartaCast, brought to you by the Social and Psychological Research on Technology Interaction Effects Lab, the Sparty Lab. You'd think I'd not have to read it by now, but I don't want to mess it up. The Sparty Lab here at MSU, Michigan State University. I'm Dr. Robbie Rattan, your host and director of the lab. And this is episode 20, 20, 2020, it's Friday. Welcome to SpartyCast. Can I make that joke? Is that reference? Okay. I, can I keep making these, these episode number jokes, by the way? Um, I want to know. <laughs> because in 1920, uh, women earned the right to vote in the United States. Ponzi schemes were invented. And the first commercially licensed radio station began. That's appropriate. 20 is also the element calcium the 20th element calcium is appropriate today because maxwell foxman is sharp like my teeth <laughs> okay that's a stretch um but i have no bones to pick with him in fact i have many great topics to pick with him he and i have worked together on multiple research projects we are also part of the leadership team of the International Communication Association's Game Studies Division. Well, he is. I, I phased out very recently, but Maxwell Foxman is an assistant professor of media studies and game studies at the University of Oregon School of Journalism and Communication. He's been there for a few years now, but I feel like he's been established as a scholar for decades. He's just so well versed in his topics relating to journalism in game studies and virtual reality, understanding how the public perception of virtual reality disconnects from the scholarly understanding, um, translating these understandings for journalists who can then of course translate it for the public. He really understands himself these topics well enough to help other people in different contexts with different goals and motivations. So it's a great pleasure to speak with him and I hope you enjoy the episode. But before we start the episode, one more point I wanna make here is that the conversation around these episodes is happening on Twitter. I don't say this enough and I'm gonna say this now. We post every episode link from our SpartyCast account on Twitter. That's at SpartyCast, Sparty spelled with an I-E. So it's S-P-A-R-T-I-E-C-A-S-T. That is our Twitter name. Look up an episode that you like or hate and then make a comment. Please engage me and my production team. We will gladly start to build a community around some of these episodes. This is a request I received recently. It's a great idea uh, to promote this type of discussion. So yeah, jump on in. You like something, you hate something, you don't like my Friday joke, just let me know and I will respond to you and all 27 of our other followers. <laughs> but growing, but growing. All right, on to the show. Hello, Max Foxman, Dr. Maxwell. Uh, Hello. Max a million dollars <laughs> that we're going to get on this grant, maybe. <laughs> Hopefully. Hopefully. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. We're, at, we're at, the, at the doorstep. I think we'll make it. But anyway, Max, how are you? Thank you so much for joining SpartyCast. Where are you, where are you calling from today? 
I am calling from my office in Eugene, Oregon at the University of Oregon, um, which I'm so happy to be back in after so many months of sort of staying away. And so for those who can't see it, it's covered in VR headsets um, and lots and lots of rubber ducks that actually my dad gave me that he'd been collecting long before I ever got the job, but that were um, that are the symbol of the University of Oregon. So I was a duck before I even knew it. Oh, wow. Awfully fond of you. Um, and, <laughs> and your background there. And I also like the degrees. Who needs a Zoom background, a, a virtual background when you've got your degrees on the wall? One fine day. I'll, yeah. I'm going to start recording these in the lab soon enough. You, you must come and visit the lab, um, the actual Sparty lab, as opposed to this abstract concept of the lab that uh, you are now a part of, Max. You are a member of the SpartyCast podcast uh, team. So thank you for agreeing and, uh, and let's take it away. I like sure. to start, as you know, with a bit of your history. So go ahead. This is the Max show. Okay, great. Yeah, so my, uh, my background to both uh, communications and to virtual reality research is somewhat circuitous. Um, I had actually started my master's with the idea of doing something in comics um, because I was a, uh, that's part of what I did my undergrad in. And so I started at NYU's uh, Department, of Media, Department of Media, Culture and Communication. And uh, one day sort of stumbled into a video game theory class just for fun. I needed to fulfill my credits. And, you know, I, I've always been fond of games. I've never been really a hardcore gamer, but I was really struck at the time at how the theories that I was reading about involving, you know, games, ludology, play, all that sort of stuff applied to all these other aspects of my life. Um, at the time I was a, and I still am uh, an avid Foursquare user for those who remember that app. It was uh, Wait, a hot R? I'm like one of the five. Um, me and my friends are still going strong. It's now called Swarm, but we're still, we're still checking in everywhere. I checked in to here today. Um, and I, I really was interested in like, why am I playing this game that, you know, obviously gives up so much of your privacy and, and, and sort of, and, and tells people where you are, why am I doing this? And so my master's thesis was sort of exploring that question of why do people play Foursquare and what does it mean to play Foursquare? Um, and I started realizing that I could take a lot of the theories that I saw in, uh, game studies and apply them to other, uh, I was just seeing them in other professions and particularly other media professions. So that led me to my PhD, which I got uh, from Columbia University's journalism school. Um, while I was there, because it is a journalism school, uh, I spent a lot of time looking at the relationship between uh, uh, games and play and journalism. And then um, I became particularly interested in the subject of early adopters of new technologies uh, and whether they play with those technologies. And so at the time that I started doing my, my dissertation research, the thing that was sort of new and hot was um, commercially available VR. And so that led me to a two-year ethnography, um, 90 interviews with uh, different early adopters of VR all around New York City, um, which I'm currently working on finishing and putting into a, a, a full-length book. And it's continued from there to look at the relationship between VR and 
journalism, the relationship uh, between VR and other media professions, and then also looking at other places where games and uh, and media meet. So I'm doing a lot of work now in esports, still doing a lot of work on gamification, and uh, I think that's that's my work in a nutshell. Wow, it's a it's a rather large nut to hold in that shell <laughs> from Wrong. from journalism as a as a home but not really as a focus it's sounding like i mean vr is used in journalism some early studies i've seen have uh, looked at how you can bring people into the story of an individual or, or, a, or a topic more easily through vr but then esports gamification um you connect multiple topics and do you find that there's anyone like you out out here in our world that's an interesting question. Um, I certainly have good conversations with all sorts of different um, scholars. So I have sort of my, my, I dabble in the journalism world, I dabble in game studies, sort of more on the qualitative social science side. And then I, I can talk quite a bit with, um, and, I, and I've had some really good relationships with people that may be more on the media psychology VR side. Um, I have a paper in press, for instance, that looks at um, the relationship between, and, and this is with two scholars here at, uh, at UO, looking at how uh, media and scholars have defined empathy when it comes to VR. Because as you might remember, even a few years ago, the notion of VR being an empathy machine was such a, was such a hot topic, and it was a hot topic in the news. So this was a way to sort of triangulate these different worlds where what we found is that everyone was saying VR was causing empathy, but everyone was measuring and defining empathy differently. So as a consequence, uh, we, we sort of go through some of those discrepancies between the media portrayal and the scholarly portrayal to try to come up with our own definition that might be useful to uh, journalists and, and scholars alike. So I think often that's part of my, and that certainly is part of, uh, you know, Columbia's tradition of producing sort of public facing scholars in one way or another. Uh, I, I try to come up with work that can speak across these different groups and maybe even get into the public eye when possible. Okay, so speaking of the public eye, um, this podcast, I believe, has at least three listeners, maybe a few more. All right. <laughs> Some of them are <laughs> students. I got an email just yesterday from a former student. He wrote, oh, you probably don't remember me, but I was in this class and that class. Of course, I remember this this student. Um, so shout out uh, to Jack. And uh, thanks for writing. If any students are listening, Max, I mean, feel you feel me on this. When a student writes you years later, it is like the most touching thing. Oh, it's great. It's it's all you want to get. <laughs> exactly. It's it's the best kind of email um, ever out of out of my entire, you know, thousands <laughs> per month or whatever it is <laughs> per week even. Um, so and, and Jack said, I mean, he's listening to the podcast. That's great. Uh, and maybe there are other students, maybe we've got uh, former undergrads or current current grad students, but also this podcast kind of intends to appeal to people in industry. And so you're talking about the public eye, and increasingly I realize we, we as a field, communication, media psychology, um, you know, critical cultural studies, People don't understand what it is we really do and where, where the value is and what we do, the, the applied value. Um, so as someone who 
understands at least the the media um, depictions of VR and, and has worked in journalism. Um, what's the easiest way right now for our listeners to explain communication scholarship? Oof. Well, uh, communication scholarship, I think, would be a little difficult for me to to describe. I guess I would answer that question two ways, or answer that question two ways. First is thinking about what communication scholars can do uh, in more public-facing uh, work, um, like how they can bring their work to public to, to the public, and I think particularly about students. And, and you know, this is something that I talk to my own students about about whether when they have a communications degree, what type of jobs they can get. Mm -hmm. um, and then the second thing I would talk about is maybe how VR can be communicated to the public, because I think that there are still discrepancies. When we say VR, I think we mean a lot of different things. So, you know, regarding the first point, um, I, I, I sort of do two things with my research, or I add two parts of my background that I think are instructive as to what people can do with communications degrees. And that was, I worked for at least a little while as a consultant and um, doing consulting work when we think about communications, I think is a really good uh, sort of uh, uh, example of what we can do to the, for the public, which is we do research on media, how media works, how people deal with media, and we can present that in meaningful ways. We can communicate that information in ways that maybe other scholars can't. And when so, you say media, <clears throat> I think this is maybe one of the early disconnects. Yeah. You don't just mean the media, the no, no, no. media. You mean any media technology from radio to television to VR to haptic feedback robot sex machines, right? <laughs> if you well, want to and, and, yeah, and my and one of the places I worked was Superdata, which has unfortunately closed, but that was a, a, a game consultancy. So we would get hired to write reports for companies. And we also published reports that could be purchased that were just about the state of the games industry. You know, who's, who's playing what? What type of games are, are growing? What types of games are shrinking? What types of games are popular in Asia versus Turkey versus, you know, um, North America? And so that was a lot of the work that we did. And that was where I did a lot of this early work, which became my research. Honestly, that's where I started doing work on VR. I did some work on esports. I did some work on, on live streaming um, or what we called gaming video content at the time. So, you know, that was that that is definitely some one place you can see it. Um, and then the other thing that I, I, I've done really throughout my Ph.D. is I've worked for uh, sort of public facing think tanks, particularly the Tau Center for Digital Journalism, where I'm currently a fellow and I've been a fellow in the past. And there I produce reports that journalists can use um, about subjects like games play in the news. So there I interviewed, uh, that, that was a report I did in 2015, and I interviewed and observed uh, various journalists that were making games for the news and also that were being playful with the news. I spent some time at BuzzFeed. And by the end of it, wait, I wait, produced... sorry, what do you mean by games for the news? Oh, that's a that's a good question. Um, so uh, these were news games and uh, we broke I, I broke them down into a couple of different formats. But traditionally, a news game has literally been a game about a news subject. So uh, probably the most famous examples were things like um, Darfur is Dying, which was a uh, made by MTV and was a uh, a really interesting example of trying to depict 
what it would be like to be a Darfurian refugee during that crisis. More recently, the one that I always have my students play is something called the Uber game, which was based on, I think, 20 or 30 interviews with Uber drivers, mostly around the Sacramento area. And it's a choose your own adventure game done by the Financial Times where you can, you know, um, try to make choices to make some money as an Uber driver. And it's supposed to give you a sense of if you win, you still may not make that much money. And it's supposed to give you that sense of like, oh, wow, being a, an Uber driver is not that easy. Um, so I, I sort of that's one bucket, but then also I found that plenty of people were just being playful with the news. So they would do things like um, come up with playful infographics where uh, you could race Usain Bolt, uh, the, the famous runner, by tapping to try to go as fast as he could go. And this isn't exactly a game, but it's playful and it's fun and it's, you know, it engages readers. Um, and by the end of the report, I produced, you know, some recommendations about, you know, how people should, uh, or how journalists specifically should take in game design sort of practices of iteration, getting feedback from their audiences, et cetera, to, to produce better work. Um, and now I'm working on something similar involving um, the use of virtual worlds. So um, it's called Lessons for Journalists from Virtual Worlds is the name of the project. And it's interviewing and looking at how virtual worlds have been used during the pandemic from Zoom to Fortnite. And getting, trying to provide some sense, uh, you know, I'm still in the middle of the research, so I don't have answers yet, but it's um, trying to provide some, some best practices for how journalists should make use of virtual worlds, um, particularly as they become more of a part of our everyday life. This all falls into that first category um, that was about three branches back <laughs> <laughs> of, um, of communication um, yeah. as, as, as a discipline and and the value but the other one um to branch now back there you said had to do with interpreting these technologies right or or, yeah, or specifically you know how to communicate what vr is to the public because yeah. i think a lot of my own research has been about the kind of disconnects that we have between what we think of what what scholars frankly think of as virtual reality and what the public understands that to be. And I think intuitively we sort of get that, um, you know, when people talk about VR, it still I think is wrapped up in these kind of sci-fi metaverse notions of, you know, entering into something like the matrix and being able to instantly, you know, through telepresence get to some other world um, and have that whole interaction be seamless. Um, and I think much of the, the, the research that that's done and it's great research is about trying to find ways to sort of more accurately depict that kind of metaverse while seeing it off in some distant future. But the reality is when VR became commercial, um, whether you were a journalist or a video game player or something in between, a filmmaker, um, you, can, you can sort of insert what you'd like there. The understanding what VR was became really different because people started producing commercial content. And so a lot of the work that I do is really about trying to communicate, okay, there are these real discrepancies between what VR could be and what VR is. And so, you know, the ways that I've done that, a lot of my research sort of falls into that. And, and in my opinion, I think what I aim to communicate are, are a couple of things. One is the influence of games and the game industry in constructing our notions of VR, um, that, that much of what we think of as VR content um, and commercial VR content comes from games. 
Um, and number two, uh, really trying to think about sort of issues surrounding uh, 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 barriers, both ethical, ideological, and then just sort of nuts and bolts barriers like affordability, content, supply chain um, that, that prohibit uh, in some ways us reaching this kind of vision of VR, which, you know, who knows if it will ever come into being, but is certainly what I think many VR enthusiasts aspire to. So your work is largely, I guess, um, designed to translate sounds like you're in, in from many in many different contexts from media to journalists from journalists to the public and even others yeah and and also maybe to be uh to ground some of the the more uh uh aspirational or uh what's the word you know uh so, some of the more the 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 bigger bigger views of what uh particularly vr can be so um you know, I a lot, a couple of examples of this are, uh, you know, I, I when I was do, my dissertation work and what I'm turning into uh, a book was looking at early adopters of VR generally, um, and and I've published a paper too about this as well, specifically talking about the Unity game engine. Um, and what I found interviewing um, a lot of early enthusiasts, and these were people that were not. Um, you know, very different from kind of the Silicon Valley visionaries, for lack of a better way of putting it. These were people that were going to meetups. That's how I recruited was mostly through meetups, enthusiast meetups all around New York. And many of them were just hoping to sort of get into the industry. And many of them felt like they had these big dreams with VR, but it required a lot of time and effort and, and labor to make sure that they could actually develop and make VR content, which was what they needed to do at the time. And they also needed skills. So if you were a game designer or a game developer, you, you had a leg up in making VR content, whereas if you didn't, you didn't. And so there were a lot of cultural issues that sort of surrounded that, um, which I've explored and will continue to explore throughout the book. Like if you are a white man, which is a predominant part of the video game industry, you probably, uh, the, you were probably more comfortable and had enough Game, game capital, cultural capital, knowledge about games to make content, and then often would make video game-based content. So there's a kind of self-perpetuating cycle. Um, so that's more of like a, a cultural uh, side of my research. And then by contrast, uh, I just published a paper, again, with those same colleagues who uh, did the empathy paper, along with our uh, new media, VR media psychology. We have a virtual virtual reality and media psychology. I forgot the exact position name, uh, Danny Pimentel. He's a new professor here. Um, and he, uh, you know, we published this paper just asking really nuts and bolts questions of why VR didn't take off during COVID-19. And so we broke that down into four categories, um, content, uh, again, much of the content was, is focused around games, affordability, you know, the headsets are cheap and they're getting cheaper, but you know, for the most, and this was looking specifically at people um, looking at this in the context of mental health. So um, thinking about how those with mental health issues might not have the money for, for that sort of, uh, for, to afford headsets. We talked about supply chain. Um, obviously, we're in a kind of chip shortage that seems to be dragging on and on and on. And then we talked about more equitable design. Um, you know, again, this, this notion that if you're 
conversant in game controllers, you're going to have a lot easier time with VR um, than if you're not. Um, and then obviously, you know, some of the work that you and I have done has been about sort of also that kind of translation, but there between sort of game content on, in VR versus uh, non-game content, maybe trying to come up with a new language surrounding that. So in all of this translation, there's uh, there's a thread, right? It's VR um, and it's, it, it's analytical in the moment of the technological progression. Um, and so my last interview was with Adam on our team. Cool. Um, who, yeah, yeah. So he, <laughs> he also thinks a lot about VR, <laughs> but from such a different perspective, you know, he's, he's making art, his scholarship is art and the tangible product is, is there in front of you, it's playable. Um, and then it, it's more than that. It, it's a critique on society. It's avant-garde art. It's absurd kind of hot dog shooting uh, <laughs> or other scenarios. Um, but that's that's something that people can like pick up and play. Um, for a, a student, a general public member, how do they pick up and play this, this type of scholarship that we both do? This translational, yeah. like analytical, um, almost descriptive in some contexts, uh, papers about what's happening in media. Is there, is, is there a tangible way for them to connect with our mode of, of scholarship? Yeah, I mean, I think so. I think that, again, it sort of depends on what type of student we're talking about. So for me, I, I strongly believe in, you know, I'm at a professional school, we have students who a majority of our undergrads, at least are planning on getting careers in advertising in journalism, etc. Um, and for those, I, you know, I hope that it, it, they can read something like what I'm writing about VR, and it will inform the types of stories they tell. Um, you know, the story of VR, and, and this is another, I, I talk about all the branches of work, I'm also working on a book about the mainstreaming of game journalism, and about how, as games become something that's covered increasingly in popular, uh, in popular, this is actually just print journalism, so very narrow, um, but as, as, uh, as print journalists cover games more and more, how can they cover them better? What are issues surrounding um, game industry and game culture? And that's with my colleague, David Eborg at uh, the University of Toronto. We've been working on that for quite some time. Um, but, you know, one of the things we talk about is when you cover games and VR is definitely part of this, it's often covered the same way. It's often covered, you know, as, as Dimitri Williams said, with utopian and dystopian frames and he wrote a paper about that in 2003, and it's still pretty true today, not as true, but pretty true, at least from our findings. Um, so the point is, is that, you know, on a practical level, if you're writing about VR, I want you to tell stories maybe more about folks like Adam, to be honest, about these people that are breaking and bending rules rather than just covering VR as a hot new technology or a technology that is in crisis or so on and so forth. Um, if you're... If you're uh, maybe a psychologist or um, you, you're planning, you know, you're thinking about this more on an interpersonal scale or in terms of interpersonal communication or in terms of just um, your own research or life trajectory, I think that um, 
work like ours should hopefully give anyone pause and thought about how they, you know, about their purchasing power, about the content they choose, um, about how they explain these new technologies or how when new technologies come out, they, they reflect upon them. I mean, that the, the root of my, my initial research, as I said, was early adopters. So, you know, I could have just as easily done this research about something like um, wearables or, uh, you know, nowadays maybe self-driving cars. Um, and, and I think that there might be similar findings. I mean, that was, that was sort of what, what I've, I've believed. Um, I haven't done the research for it. But the point is, you know, if you read about how games, uh, VR should be more affordable, there are issues with supply chain, there should be more equitable design, that's a path for just any designer um, and any consumer, right? Choose the things that may choose the uh, content that maybe is a little bit different from what you'd expect, or that think about equitable design in the content that you're buying. Um, that you know, and if that means getting one extra VR experience, um, I'm sure that would make everyone happy. Um, it doesn't mean you can't get the game that you love. It just means maybe broadening the scope of what you're purchasing and why. Um, so you know, classic example of this for me is whenever I put people into VR sort of without question, this will probably change because now uh, it's gotten a little old. But the first thing that I put people into whenever I was doing a VR experience was Tilt Brush. Um, it's not a game. It doesn't require that knowledge. It's just a game. It's just an experience where you paint in 3D. And I love it. Um, and it's the only, and this was directly from my research actually, because when I interviewed people, the only experience they spent more than 15 minutes in was Tilt Brush. I'd heard all these stories about losing yourself for hours in Tilt Brush. And so that, that hit a nerve, right? And that hits those points, right? It's affordable, it's equitable in terms of design. It has a very different form of content that we normally associate with VR. And so that's exactly the sort of um, insights, even though they're small life insights that I hope that people can take away from my work. Sure, yeah, it's accessible. Um, you don't need fancy uh, knowledge of game controllers there's one button and you're spraying <laughs> i guess you do have to use the palette thing to kind of choose your stuff so yeah i take that back a little bit but um, it's it's pretty easy and the other thing is that people have fun with it i mean if if you ever find yourself i don't know how sparty lab will will or is set up but you know watching someone paint in vr is an amazing experience there's joy on their face i actually sat in on uh, at one VR arcade, someone was doing uh, sort of like uh, therapy sessions in VR um, as part of a meetup. And it was great because you could see like you're getting prompts as to what to paint based on your life or what was bothering you. And then just to see people relax and to see people sort of like shape um, these stories, it was it's it's very revelatory um, and really sort of wonderful and not, again, what one would expect from kind of traditional VR content in a lot of ways. Wow. I feel very fortunate that I have such cool and interesting people in my network. <laughs> um, and it's really exciting to be able to share your perspective here, Max, with, with my listeners. And um, before we go, one last question, because this is, this is the, the thing that I always come back to. You probably know I want to seed a little bit of a discussion about avatars. Sure. <laughs> so yeah, what, 
from your research perspective, let's just yeah. say you were going to try to translate something about <laughs> avatars for the public. I certainly do that. I get the question. So what actually is an avatar in your mind? Because people use it colloquially in many different ways. So I could see that topic. But but what else is exciting about avatars to you? So what's exciting about avatars to me is, and, and this does go back to sort of my research in journalism, is how much, and I, I hope this makes sense, but how much sort of the jury is still out on avatars and journalism. And what I mean by that is, you know, when you bring up things like avatars in the context of either games or VR in journalism, there is an, an almost automatic tension that arises because they're not real. Um, and journalism is all about showing objective truth, at least ideally, right? That's, that's a, a longstanding part of the ideology of journalism. However, and this is a thing that I find really interesting, what we consider objectively true has really morphed um, from, let's say, the beginning of the 20th century to uh, the beginning of the 21st. If you were looking at what was objectively true in the beginning of the 20th century in journalism, you were... Most people thought the world was round, but now... <laughs> <laughs> well, now it's flat for some. <laughs> yeah, and, and it'll go in a circle again. Uh, <laughs> but like, what you would actually find is that... Um, Print uh, every people did not trust photos at the time. They were considered too otherworldly, too mm. outside of reality. And actually, most newspapers were doing print cuts. You know, the sort of thing like woodcut prints, and those were considered super real. Um, my my dissertation chair, uh, Andy Tucker, has written about this, and um, really interesting, right? So nowadays, we would consider that like so, that sort of drawing not objectively true, and obviously photographs have superseded that as being more objectively true. So here's my, here's my, uh, here's my uh, prognostication hat being put on. And, and some of the work that I'm doing is around as computer generated images become more and more part of our everyday life, how is that going to change? And particularly through things like avatars, how are we going to have to, as journalists, reassess truth, objectivity, and really what, how we represent people. Um, and so I think you're starting to see little seeds of this in not so much, um, not so much research. Um, I'm doing some research on this. I have a project I'm working on called Best Practices in Computer-Generated Storytelling. And then I already mentioned the virtual worlds research I'm doing for um, the Tau Center, which both cover that to some degree. But what I think is a really interesting question is you're starting to see these little seeds of stories and places, particularly given the COVID-19 pandemic, where avatars were being taken seriously and much more generously by journalists. And to give two quick examples, um, in the research I'm doing on virtual worlds, we have a whole section where we talk about coverage of Animal Crossing and how most journalists were writing about that as a way of getting back to regular life. And think about that. Those are avatars interacting in just sort of everyday existence. And that was actually seen as a positive, not as something that was unreal, which is also very unusual for games coverage. The other example that I've been seeing and sort of tracking through the pandemic is this conversation about metaverses, particularly through things like Fortnite and how they are being taken increasingly seriously as uh, spaces for interaction. Um, and, and starting to tackle with some of these questions and concerns about um, what those metaverses mean, how we represent ourselves in them, et cetera. 
And for many scholars, we've been thinking about this for years. I mean, Robbie, obviously you've been doing your work. Uh, Donna Davis here at UO has been doing work in virtual worlds since the early 2000s. Um, and so I just think that's really interesting that now journalists are sort of starting to see like, okay, either we're gonna have to be spending more time in these spaces because they're becoming the social media spaces of a, of a younger generation, or maybe we're gonna start seeing public events in them. So the coverage of, for instance, the Travis Scott concert and the potential of then candidate Joe Biden holding a rally in Fortnite was big news. I mean, it was big news for a week, but it was big news. So those are the places where I think there's a lot of room for research and, um, and a lot of where questions about avatars and, and where, where scholarship will prove very useful for um, media makers, both, both in terms of fictional media, but also um, nonfiction media like journalism and, and documentary. I think that's going to be places where you really start to see these things be meted out. I think that's fascinating. And um, this notion of objective truth and avatars, I hadn't thought about it in those terms. It makes a lot of sense to me that initially we would see an avatar as being algorithmically or otherwise um, not directly related to the individual. So then it's not a truth. But I think also as a society, feel free to push back you or listeners in comments. Um, <laughs> as a society, we are coming to respect the subjective truth of individuals as their objective truth, whether that's um, in like loving who you want to love or being the gender you want to be, or just, you know, like having an identity that, that you claim to be your own, like we are your gender pronoun, that kind of thing. Like we are as a society moving toward just respecting that. And if that's the case, then this body that I'm born with isn't, isn't necessarily the subjective presentation of who mm. I am. The avatar could be a greater subjective and thus, I guess, uh, objectively accepted truth of my identity. So why would I even show people my real body when, when I can, if everyone's walking around in their AR glasses and seeing people as they wanna be presented, then that's, that's the future perhaps. Well, and it's interesting that sort of as this is, as those questions are sort of coming to the foreground, journalism itself is in a, a moment where the questioning of objectivity has become much more normalized. Um, if you think about really 20, 25 years ago, uh, objectivity was the name of the game, but now there's a lot more conversations and people see this on Twitter and social media all the time about like, how should journalists represent themselves in stories? And so I think you're, you're, you're right in that avatars can provide maybe a venue for us to explore that as public communicators, because we can make choices about how we represent ourselves, um, how we see ourselves, some of the, the questions about, um, you know, uh, I, I think that that's, that would be particularly useful from the journalist's point of view, I guess is what I'm saying, because they would have to make choices which they are making, but have to make sort of under the radar um, because journalism doesn't really allow for those sort of questions right now, or you know, the US version of journalism that is sort of predominant. Um, but I also think that it'll be really interesting, you know, um, there are how you you communicate that or how you again sort of sort of use the name of the 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 the, the name of the day, how you translate what you see in the quote real world or the objective world and what and how people want to subjective, subjectively 
present that is going to be a real challenge for journalists because it creates sort of like a third point, right? There's the, the objective truth, their translation of it, and then their translation of other, um, other people's iterations of that um, through something like avatars. Um, not to say that journalists haven't been doing that sort of work forever. I mean, that's what interviewing kind of is, um, or interviewing and turning that into a story. But, um, but at the same time, it, it does present new challenges, which I think are really interesting. And probably, you know, a, a, a sort of tagline that I sometimes use with my, my journalism related research is I like to study the things that haven't quite become popular yet. So I'm doing a lot of work with Twitch as a journalistic tool. Um, which is fascinating and you know i could talk about that for hours but um the point is i think this question of avatars and journalism is probably one of these other things that's on the cusp we're probably five to ten years away from it really starting to hit the ground but now's the time to be asking those questions that is an objectively true statement it's also objectively true that we've taken plenty of your time max and i really <laughs> appreciate it subjectively uh, I, I am indebted and I hope that other listeners enjoyed and I look forward to working more with you and, and keeping you in the loop on the podcast. And given the, uh, the listenership, you know, I, I just want to invite if anyone wants to send me emails or find me on Twitter at Maxwell Foxman, I am always happy to chat to, to sort of, you know, expand on any of these points, anything that you like. I'm, I'm around and at Maxwell Foxman. At Maxwell Foxman, future game studies chair of the International Communication Association division here, um, and a, a very prominent scholar. So thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with us, Max. I'll talk to you soon. Yep, talk to you soon. Bye. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, please follow, download, subscribe. Really, just click that little button. It will help us. It will help us help you. So help me help you help us by smiling right now and saying, okay, I'll take that extra five seconds of effort to, to click the button that somehow connects you to SpartyCast in your digital ecosystem. Our producers today and forever are George McNeil and Taylor Halterman. Thank you for listening to SpartyCast. Hope to see you next time where we will be talking about avatars because we always talk about avatars. Um, and it will probably be with my good friend and colleague, Andrea Stevenson Juan, a professor at Cornell who does amazing virtual reality research. I'm really excited to speak with her on avatars in particular for most of the episode because she is really a, a world-class premier expert on this stuff. Thank you so much. See you next time. Thank you for tuning into SpartyCast. Goodbye world.